Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Dinner plate size 1.2 kilo stack of frog. Gram for gram, the most poisonous amphibian. They've all got lovely little death stickers, toxic, bright yellow on their tank. It's like a child's drawing of a frog. Looking at one pretty much eye to eye. Absolutely vacant. (laughs) You may remember last year when Roddy and I went to the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust Slimbridge Reserve to have a look at some cranes and a few of the other cool birds that they'd got there. Well, whilst we were there and having a look around, it was also mentioned that Slimbridge has got a pretty impressive collection of amphibians too. If you've listened to the podcast much in the past, you'll know that our very own Roderick Shaw is a big fan of the amphibians. So, I booked us back in for another visit at Slimbridge, this time to meet Kay Baxter, who is going to get us face-to-face with the frogs. We are here at Slimbridge a year after we've been here before. To the day. To the day. So as we record this, it is May the 11th, and that's about the only similarity with the day that we had last year, because it is blinding sunshine compared to last year when we were hiding in the... uh, Hiding in the... Hide. Hide. Uh, Yeah, I was trying to find the word, (laughs) but I was saying it as we were going. But we are here for a very different reason, because instead of focusing on birds and cranes, as we did last time, we are here to talk about amphibians. So we have enlisted the help another guest, Kay. Hi. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's all right. Thank you very much for being our guide through amphibians. Now, this is a bit, I have to admit that this is a bit of a treat for Roddy because our very own Roddy Shaw is a big fan of the amphibian, aren't you? Huge fan. Good. Huge Glad to hear fan. it. Six foot four of fan. <laughs> windmill. <laughs> Absolute amphibian windmill. Incredible. So, Kay, would you like to explain who you are and what you do? Yes. I would love to. So my self-titled job title, uh, I'm Head Frog uh, <laughs> at Slimbridge. Um, my official title, I'm the Living Collections Supervisor for Ectotherms, so not just amphibians anymore. Um, so my team and I look after 47 species of amphibian, two species of fish, oh. so 49 species in total. Uh, we've got 350 odd animals that we look after um, on a day-to-day basis. We've got frogs from all corners of the planet. So we've got frogs from Asia, North America, South America, Europe, uh, Australia, Mm. one Australian species. Um, So part of my job is to talk to people about frogs. So this fits in very, very nicely. Um, Challenge a lot of views of people being like, oh, I don't really like frogs. Um, <laughs> who doesn't like frogs? What are they? When you meet people who don't like frogs, what is their what's what their problem? What's their, what their problem? What's wrong with you? First yeah. of all, yeah. yeah. So people will walk through Toad Hall, um, which is where all our on-show exhibits are. Look at all our beautiful, beautiful tanks uh, and go, "Do you work here?" And I'm in full uniform, and I say, "Yes, I do." And they go, oh, "I just don't like frogs." <laughs> oh. You've just looked at. <laughs> Some really lovely species. Um, and if I could just, I mean, Kay mentioned walking through Toad Hall. Yes. It is 
literally wall-to-wall frog. Yes. Like both frog mural. Yes. Uh, frog themed lot. play area. Yep. Yeah. All Fro- sorts. Holes in the wall viewing tanks with frogs in yeah. them. Other holes in the wall viewing rooms with more tanks of frogs. Mm. So to stand in there and say... Although if you don't like frogs, that <laughs> yeah. is yeah, the, it is the your most triggering, that is incredibly <laughs> triggering position that you could be in. But they're just so... Right, what is it that you like about frogs? Because you have said on the podcast many times before what a fan you are of the frog. What, I want to distill down what this is. So a big bit of why I like frogs, to be honest, probably isn't going to come across very well on the frogs themselves. <laughs> I find them nature's most blissful expression of gormless. Oh, I fully agree with you. <laughs> we were just admiring some of my tiger salamanders and there is not a single thought happening behind those eyes. They are absolutely... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing happening. White noise going on in there. Completely. Yeah. And uh, I think I've mentioned this, but on my walk um, in, from home to the office, I go past a pond mm-hmm. in central London, and it is right like there's a main road on one side. It's a proper little oasis island. And in there at the moment, every morning on my way in, I look in and I check for frogs. Incredible. And, you know, the more frogs, the better the day I'm going to have. We love to hear it. Absolutely. The more frogs, the better. There's nothing like building your own superstition. (laughs) But there is, you know, like walking in, knowing I've got meetings, knowing I've got stress, knowing I've got pressure. And to just see something sat there with, as you've said, absolutely nothing (laughs) happening. Not a care in the world. And you can go beyond that because when you see them try, they're they're essentially like a stomach, a spring-loaded stomach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, birds have different eating, you know, like flamingos are over there and their bill is shaped like this to eat like this. And the avocets are shaped like that to eat like that. All frogs are a spring-loaded stomach that just fire themselves at whatever is moving near them in an attempt to get it in them. And there's just something so beautifully vacant about them. (laughs) Now, a step beyond that, they're absolutely fantastic. You know, the metamorphosis, the science behind them, the life cycle to be born in one way and the the, the change and the colours of them. And we're learning more about the toxins on their skin that can be used in this way and that way like they are incredible in their kind of science and natural history and then you see them (laughs) (laughs) and that's what you get and that's what's happening (laughs) what have you heard about the pumpkin toadlets i have not so pumpkin toadlets are a species i believe they're brazilian Uh, i would say don't quote me on that but you're recording me as we speak um but they've evolved to be so so tiny that they're no longer very effective at jumping yeah. I think their inner ear has completely gone ineffective. If you ever see a video of them, it's this tiny, tiny, bright orange little creature and it flings itself across, pretty much just backflips away instead of jumping like a normal creature and staying the right way up. Yeah. They are just ridiculous. So they're not even good at being a mouth on legs. They can't even... So yeah. although they're called toadlets, they are a complete... That you're not just talking about the baby version of something that is. I'm pretty sure it's lifelong, yeah, yeah. yeah a lifelong, lifelong affliction of yeah. being a terrible, terrible amphibian. <laughs> I think I have seen those and the videos of them, and they just sort of, yeah, they they get the spring-loaded bit and then they just tumble through the air. They're like the little plastic frogs you yeah. had when you were little that you could make jump by sort of yeah. putting a finger on the bum and yeah. flicking them on. Yeah. Is that what got you into frogs? Oh, good question. The plastic flicky frogs. I what, wish it did, was. What, what was it? Um, what brought you here? So I 
I don't think I realised that it was always frogs for me as much as it has been. Um, at my graduation for my undergrad degree, my mum had made me a card and she'd cut out a poem that I wrote her when I was eight. Um, and it's called The Frogologist. And it's how, when I grew up, I was going to be a frogologist and share all my money with her. Um, I think the last line of the poem was like, now I'm grown up, I work in an office, but I still like frogs. Um, and she'd stuck this in my card um, and I was about to go and do my master's degree and focus on mantella populations. Um, well, you've absolutely nailed the prediction because I've seen your office and it is a desk surrounded by frog tanks. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, completely. So, um, yeah, so... My dad used to find a lot of amphibs in our back garden. He would pull slow worms, not an amphibian, but next to them, out of our compost heap uh, and bring them down the garden to show me and my brother um, common toads. We had those common toads. Um, my auntie had a pond which would have frog spawn every year and we grew some of that at nursery and stuff. And they're just wonderful. There's just pure joy in a frog, yeah. absolutely, for me. Yeah. And, and you've, you've mentioned a little, about the, uh, little bit about the collection you've got here. Mm. Why is it that the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust has even got this collection? I mean, you, we can hear we can hear the ducks around <laughs> us. For anyone who for anyone who can hear this constant soundtrack, we are surrounded by the collection of uh, Slimbridge's wildfowl, but the amphibians. Why are they such an important part of the collection here at Slimbridge? I would argue amphibians are the most important. Oh, great response. Yeah, thank you so much. We like that. So uh, <laughs> my assistant Megan and I, we're the only two ectotherm people in living collections. So we have to really fight for our stuff. So if you talk to me about frogs, I'm going to get a bit feisty. Um, especially compared to, as you say, all these amazing birds that we have absolutely everywhere on show and off show. You don't need to call them amazing if you don't want to. Uh, I mean... <laughs> you can be honest, this is a safe space. They're very space. cute. They're very cute. Um, but amphibians are the ultimate biological indicator for ecosystem health. So if we're talking about wetlands, you absolutely can't ignore frogs because they're the ones that tell us they're the first ones to go. Um, so in that sense, they're the most important research and the most important things that we can learn about, Yeah, I would argue. So on that and the, the health of the ecosystem, I mean, going around yeah. today, we've had the sponge, I don't know what you call it, the disinfectants for mm, avian influenza. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is there much either presence or work happening or anything to do with chytrid? Uh, <gasps> What a good question. Um, yes, so we've Kitra tested our entire collection this year. Um, what that involves, uh, it was a very stressful day. Uh, we did it on the 15th of February because my Valentine's Day was catching frogs uh, in preparation for it. Um, so we had to catch up every single adult amphibian, all 350 odd. On um, one day? Yes. So we'd planned three days for it yeah. um, and we got it done in half a day, which was incredible because oh, you have to it. handle each frog and take a swab from the back, from the tummy, from in between the thighs and from in between their toes. That's a much more invasive process than the COVID tests that I had to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I booked a flight in COVID and if I'd had to go to some nurse somewhere and swab in between my toes, up my thigh and everything else. You'd have yeah. just passed on the holiday. Never would have made it to St. Lucia. <laughs> I have to quite a lot of our frogs were not particular fans and yeah. some of the neats as well. Um, so we sent those all off to the Institute of Zoology in London, um, who very kindly tested them all for us. Um, and we're all negative, which is fantastic. We love to have a clear collection that makes it a lot easier when we want to be exporting, importing any kind of moves with the animals. And I think we should probably explain, what is chytrid and, and why is it so dangerous to amphibians? Um, so chytrid is a disease, um, chytridiomycosis, uh, caused by a fungus, uh, which is called 
BD. And there's a second strain, which is B. salamandris, um, which mostly affects salamanders. That's a big problem in Europe at the moment with European salamanders, um, which makes it really hard to move amphibians from here to there and vice versa. Um, so it basically disrupts the microbiome of an amphibian. They grow lots of good bacteria on their skin, um, and that plays a really, really major part in their immune system and their immune health. Um, so if you disrupt that, you're going to cause issues with desiccation. It's a really, really nasty way for amphibians to die. Um, it is incredibly, incredibly fast spreading. Mm. Um, so humans have had a massive, massive part in that. We are cutting down the rainforest, so we're making these really, really easy corridors through that we carry things through on our shoes. Um, the planet is warmer than it used to be, so the fungus isn't getting killed off in the same way. Is that is that allowing it to spread into sort of more temperate areas then, where it may have previously been I knocked believe off so. by so winters? There is chytrid in the UK. Um, yeah. It is everywhere, pretty much. Yeah. But Asian amphibians have developed some immunity, which is really interesting. Um, so we think maybe it evolved uh, in Asia and has been spread, um, but those amphibians are somewhat coming back from that, which would be quite a story of hope that we need yeah. because there are so, so many threatened amphibians at the moment. Because Kittred has, like, just decimated. Completely. Like, it's, been, it's been a huge thing in, in amphibians. You see these it? horrendous photos and it's a lake and the whole lake surface is just these frogs on their backs dead in the yeah. water. Yeah. It is absolutely devastating yeah i know people listening to this uh you know bird flu has been very uh in the in the headlines and things a lot recently and many people will have probably seen pictures of you know lots and lots of dead birds but this kittred thing is something that has just been largely unreported because it's well i mean by you know in the general on the culture news. on the news because it's not something that is as a intrinsically dangerous to us but the impact that it has had on amphibians has been it's colossal. been implicated in the declines of over 600 species at this point, I wow. think. It was a paper in 2019. That was just insane. And amphibians, I believe, they're the most threatened group of vertebrates on the planet. Absolutely. So they're already in a rough state. And then you add in, yeah. you know, turbo. I mean, we've all just lived through a pandemic, mm. but like turbo frog pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And it absolutely ruins them. But it's so it's fantastic to hear that the collection is clean. Yeah, yeah. thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I say that, I really day. need to touch this picnic bench we're sat on to make sure that I'm not jinxing myself without yes. touching any wood. So. Faux wood. Yes. <laughs> well, it's that all the skull, isn't it? So. so could you just tell us anything more about amphibians in the UK? You've mentioned that Kittred has arrived here, but what actual amphibians do we have in the country? What's our situation? We're a special collection because we have all seven native amphibians. Um, which is lovely because we get to talk about them all the time. So we have our common frogs. Mm -hmm. um, they are a lot bigger than I thought they were. You only see them in the wild and then you see them in a, cap a captive collection and they are chunky, chunky frogs. They are lovely. Um, we have a delightful collection of common toads. Um, we have one male, he's called Randy. Um, Does he live up to his name? Randy by name, Randy by nature. Yeah, okay. um, so he's a lot of fun. We're going on some tadpoles of them at the moment, which yeah. is really lovely. They've just got their back legs. We'll go and see them in a bit. Um, we is that have... like a frog's version of like losing your first tooth? Kind of. <laughs> like a... Yeah. I don't know how much you know about amphibians. You get the back legs first and then you get the front legs. Um, I really like it sometimes. So we've just bred some blue dart frogs um, and they only stuck out one front leg at a time. So they were like a little tripod tadpole for a little while and they go blue before they come out the water as well. So it's this blue three-legged kind of spotty tadpole. That's so bad. Little tripods. Yeah, they're great. Love them. Um, so we're going to common toad 
tadpoles at the moment. Great crested newts, got a group of four. Fantastic little white stripes at the moment. They're in their breeding condition, which is really, really nice. Um, they're my favorite, I think. They're the ones I remember pulling out of ponds on amphibian surveys when I was little. Yeah. Um, so they're really, really cool. We've got palmate newts, smooth newts. We also have natterjack toads and pool frogs. Ah, yes, mm. frogs, the cool. forgotten. The forgotten. forgotten frog. We had a tadpole from them last year, which yeah. sadly didn't make it, but for a little while it was really nice to point them out and say, look, this is the rarest type of tadpole in the UK. Like, aren't we so lucky? So how rare are we talking with the pool frogs? Very, very limited, very, very fragmented populations. Okay. Um, so Norfolk, the best place for them. Okay. Um, some fantastic work going on there. But the truth of the matter is they are hard to breed um, and they always will be. Um, they are a population that went extinct in the UK and we've reintroduced the Swedish species, which is our closest relative to the species that we used to have here. So yeah, really, really cool frog. Time to play my amphibian trump card. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen the wild pool frog. <gasps> no way, I'm so jealous. the rarest animal I've seen in the UK. Because they, they literally only live on like a handful of ponds where they've been reintroduced in Norfolk. They're incredibly scatty as well. I don't know if that was the same for the group that you saw, but our three here do not want to be seen. <laughs> they were, well, these were, these were on quite a big pond. And the noise, because they, they like the sun and they sing really loud. Um, and they were just out and, and when, the, when the sun was out, they would all be out on the surface of the water and they would just, the, the noise, you could hear it from like, you know, a hundred meters away as you were walking towards it, as so there was this chorus of frogs singing. Um, but yeah, they were really, really cool. Mm. I like seeing those. I think the the frog soundscape is just one of the best experiences. Sometimes when I'm sat at my desk, um, I can hear the European tree frogs to my left, um, the Oriental fire-bellied toads, which are just in front of my desk. They'll call the white tree frogs we have. Have just started calling all the way down the end, and so you hear something, and I'll be in a meeting or something on my computer, and I'm sort of leaning back and trying to look at like the water vibrations and some of the tanks to work out who it is because some yeah. of them I know and some of them I don't. It's just the golden Colombian dart frogs that I have. They have the most amazing like trilling call. It is so loud that people think we're playing a CD and it's Ooh. not. It's just these three really, really happy little frogs <laughs> having the time of their lives, especially if you change their water or something, that nice yeah. influx of cool water will sometimes trigger them to have a little bit of flirting but going yeah, on. I don't think people realize that you can, you know, like you've just said there, you can ID in the same way that you can ID bird songs. Mm. Yeah, you absolutely. You can ID amphibian calls, Yeah, completely. frog calls. Do you have a favourite? A favourite call? Mm. Mm, I really like it when our golden mantellas sing because they're so tiny and then their buccal cavity is so large it's like half the size of their body and um, so they're really putting their all into it. That must be such a like such an energy drain on such a tiny tiny frog and it's a good sound it's lovely and the rest of the time they make these little tiny dink sounds mm. is probably the best way to describe it so it's like a little contact call is that one yeah I think like so. a little just just chatting to each other yeah. rather than the full-on singing yeah not the like see... I'm here but just you know <laughs> oh, hi. there's no business like no business <laughs> with a little top hat and cane in the tank like strutting along the glass all the males lined up all the females watching you know coming down the stairs <laughs> 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 confetti yeah. cannons exactly yeah have you ever had any um in a world you know the world we now live in is Zoom meeting based. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been on a meeting and a frog has sort of 
jumped into screen, escaped? Yeah, and... not escaped, but um, my welcome day when I started here a year ago, um, you do it from where you work, um, and it's a virtual one, so you're meeting people from all over the sites. And I've got a tank of um, Amazon milk frogs at head height to the right hand of my desk. Um, and the lady who was speaking that was running the meeting, and she just goes, what is that? And one of them had like leapt onto the window and they've got fantastic like pale blue tummies and these like blue little toes and she could just see it up against the glass like watching me be inducted into WWT. Um, so yeah, they do cause a little bit of trouble if they're feeling a bit active on that day but it's a, it's a welcome distraction for me. I want nothing more than for all these frogs to be doing what they want to do. And... Should we go and have a look at some? Should we, yeah? Oh, let's. Yeah, let's go look at some frogs. Let's go see some frogs. <laughs> Okay, so where have we just stepped into? So this is our temperate breeding room. So this is more of kind of our European slash North American species for the most part. Um, things that like it a little bit cooler. Um, this is our best temperature controlled facility on site. So they come in here um, to help sort of balance out some of the heating in the main building over the summer. We're stood in like a, a small room with like tanks just up to above head high with lots of different things in them. 24 species 24 species. So it's about half our collection in this room. What's your favourite one in here? Meatball. Meatball, let's have a look. Can we, can we see Meatball? Yeah, let me grab some gloves and you can properly meet her. Oh. She's already sticking her head out of her little house because she's heard there's people in here. Um, so Meatball is an emperor crocodile newt, um, which is a species from northeastern China. She's incredibly tolerant of people. And she's probably the first animal I had a real connection with here on a spiritual level. So, uh, this is people. She lives with two boyfriends um, at Modern. a time, but she has five here on site. So we swap them in and out and see who takes her fancy. On a rotation. Is it lunar or? <laughs> we like have them draw straws or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, like Love Island. Or so this is little Meagle. She's going to come out and then I'll pick her up as well. So she's absolutely stunning. She comes all the way up to your fingers um, if you put them in when you're wearing gloves because she knows that blue gloves mean she's probably gonna get some food. Um, she will also come out of the house in the morning when you come in. Um, so she's quite large. So she's quite dumpy. Um, we're kind of going into breeding season for her. So last year in July, she laid some eggs for us. Um, so we're really getting there again, which is how she got her name. Because um, she does look like a meatball, I think. Yeah. So she's got this fantastic bony structure around her head. That's where the emperor part of her name comes from. Because it looks like she's wearing a crown. And the crocodile part, I think, is from these dots down the back. There's like little orange dots on either side of her spine. And those are poison glands. So she is a toxic species, which is also why she's a lovely yellow-orange colour. Um, to help warn predators that she's not going to taste very nice. Yeah, so to describe what she looks like, she's, you know, she's, she's a large newt. Is that large she by newt standards? Newt. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think compared to some of the other species we have in here, we've got a lot of alpine newts, which tend to be quite slim and streamlined. Yeah, I feel like if she, because she's sort of sat quite nicely in the palm of your hand, but mm. her tail would probably go, you know, it would be about the same size of your hand with a tail outstretched. Yeah, pretty much, um, yeah. And she's, she's sort of like black with very striking orange highlights. I can show you a male for comparison as well. So they are a very different colour. Here's her boyfriend's. 
Um, ah. Sorry, fellas. Sorry, yeah. fellas. All three of them they were, were in a bed together. A oh, so she's much brighter. Yeah, she's much brighter, and she's about double the girth, I would say. Yeah, and that and that and, and they're all full size. They're all yeah, adult size. all adults. These ones, um, I think they're sort of eight or nine years old. These ones. Yeah, they do look like little dragons, don't they? They're fantastic. And then the Himalayan species um, we have as well. Those don't have the yellow orange, so they're even more like toothless the dragon. Yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. So the plastic gloves you put on, is that for them or for you? Um, you mentioned she was toxic. Mostly them, yeah. I would say. Um, so even the oils in our skin can disrupt the microbiome that lives on their skin. Um, so we don't want to be putting anything that's on our hands onto them. Alcohol gels, soap, um, oils, anything that we're going to carry around, any bugs that we have. Um, but also, yeah, I don't know what is on their skin that could do us harm. I don't know with these guys how they get their poison. So. We have some species like our dart frogs, which are a lot less dangerous in captivity. They're not eating the same things um, that they would in the wild in terms of termites or bugs that are feeding on poisonous plants and stuff. Um, so when you bring those into captivity, that toxicity lessens, especially over generations. Um, so I don't know with these ones whether they're like that or if they're more like the Ruskin newts, which absolutely produce their own poison. Um, in quite a stunning fashion so oh, wow. um yeah it's just best to play it safe and also when we're going we've got 68 enclosures across site um just our team so if you're going into multiple in a row it saves us a lot of hand washing to just have a glove that you can take on and off yeah yeah and you mentioned the chytrid so if you were touching bare hands or not changing gloves between it would spread the disease absolutely yeah there are a lot of other things as well so uh, tb is quite common in amphibian populations um, TB? Yeah, so there's a tank behind you which is a TB positive um, population and that Didn't spreads that through. Over here. <laughs> 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 it's all barrier managed, I promise. Um, so you can spread that through like feces that you could touch by accident and not even know it. So, and that's, um, that's the same TB? I think it's very slightly different, but it's still a mycobacterium. So um, fish and amphibians can both have TB as well. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of health things when you've got frogs. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess because be amphibians are so sensitive, you mentioned earlier, you know, why they're great indicator species. Because mm. they they sort of experience the whole world and the chemicals within that world and the viruses within that world through their skin. Don't yes. They? It does give us a lot of cool tools though. So a lot of conservation projects will look at eDNA, um, especially for things like Sicilians, which are a really, really cryptic species. Um, so what you can do is get a sample of water and analyze it and say, yep, there's been an amphibian here because they'll take from the environment, but they'll also give to the environment very, very easily. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So we've got Meatball, Meatball Junior, Ikea, and Mini Meatball uh, is Meatball and her three offspring. The boys don't actually have any names. Oh. <laughs> We're all female supremacy here. We're an all female <laughs> team. <laughs> Just numbered one to five. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Meatball's harem. Yes, just her and the boys. <laughs> Well, the same with our sort of me. So Ethel's got a name. She's our oldest female, um, and it's Ethel and her bitches. <laughs> and you said Ethel was... She's 37. 37 years old. Yeah, people are always surprised by our amphibians and how long they live. So our axolotls could live to 30 plus. Our African clawed frogs, probably about the same. Um, there's a lot of cool water, um, slow living species that will live a really, really long time. Um, and certain things that we don't know how long they're going to live as well. So people always ask me, 
what Ethel's life expectancy is. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how commonly they're kept in captivity. Um, I imagine she's probably exceeded it. She's yeah. an old girl, but um, yeah. So even common toads, they're UK species. They can live to 40 in captivity. Wow. They are super, super cool. I've been a toad for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I very much like the crocodile news. Mm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Maple's work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's going to go for a swim as well, oh, show well, off for yeah. you. She's currently just about to dive into the water effortlessly. Mm. Yeah. Like Tom a dolphin. Bailey. Eat your heart out. In stages. It <laughs> <laughs> was like a three-part <laughs> drop into the water. The three-part tumble is a respected move <laughs> in the world, in newt diving circles. <laughs> It's hard to nail the three-part tumble quite like she just did. Okay, is there anything else in here we definitely, like, we need to look at? I really like the rough skin. So there's three boys in that one and five girls in here. So these are the ones that you said are really poisonous. Gram for gram, the most poisonous amphibian. Amphi really? Mm -hmm. In the whole, in all of amphibians? Oh, pretty sure. Yeah. So um, they're a North American species. Um, you're best off looking from below. Oh, yeah. so there's one in that corner as well. So they are dark, dark, dark brown on the top. These are, uh, yeah, these are juveniles as well, actually. Um, and then they've got a fantastic orange belly, morning yeah. coloration, and for very good reason. Um, so there were a couple of stories that I heard about them where a mysterious group of hikers in America were found dead. No signs of a struggle, no blood, you know, nothing horrendously violent had happened to them. And they But they all had a newt hanging out their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> they were investigating it and I'm pretty sure they found a Ruskin newt in their teapot. So they'd accidentally boiled one. Get out. Drunk the tea, the water, whatever. Um, oh my god. And they are so 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 incredibly poisonous because of coevolution with the garter snake, which is their only predator um, that can eat them and survive. Um, and the snakes became more and more resistant to the toxin and the newts became more and more and more toxic. And it's not from their diet, it's a chemical detrodotoxin that they produce entirely by themselves. Wow. Um, so certain pockets of them in the US are just ridiculously poisonous. Far, far, far more than they need to be. Um, well, that's, that's the thing. Like, so to describe these newts, they are the most I would say, and don't take this personally, newts, please, after what I've just heard, average-looking newts. Pretty unassuming. I've seen. Yeah. They're just, and like you said, they're like orange on the bottom, but almost as though you've drawn like a, a line straight across the side of their body. The top half is like a chocolatey brown, bottom half is orange. And they're just, they've got no frills, they've got no like bony structures, like the crocodile newts we just looked at. They're just a very average newt. Because the dart frogs, they advertise the fact they're incredibly toxic, like, yeah. Poisonous, whereas these are just going around jumping in people's teapots and, <laughs> and killing them. Yeah, so they're a really good example of the Red Queen hypothesis in terms of runaway evolution. So, where they've been locked into this race with their predator. Evolutionary arms race, yeah. Where they've got to keep getting more, t yeah, more poisonous. You even have to be careful when you're doing water changes with them, like, you don't want to throw it around too much, so. I don't know how toxic ours are. I don't know what population they're from, um, but we treat them as if they are. They've all got lovely little death stickers, toxic, bright yellow on their yeah. tanks to make sure that and um, the kettle we is keep kept in mind well where they away. Can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No tea breaks in this room. What do you do with the water? Um, so all of our water goes into this wonderful tank in the corner, um, and we treat all of our water with aircon. 
um, and that makes sure we're not putting out any TB, chytrid, okay. weird microbiomes into the um, sort of local environment. So yeah, all very, very, very chemicalized to make sure we're not doing anything we shouldn't be. That's so cool. I had no idea about rubskin newts. They're incredible. I love them very much. In this particular tank in front of us here, Ruskin Newt, toxic, very scary, you've just said. But I'm looking in and there's one of the bark hides and there's a silhouette of a spider in the bark hide and I want to say Widow. And this is now a very, very scary tank. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't like false widows, you're not going to like yeah. the rest of Toad Hall. You know, we create this lovely, warm little microcosm and then yeah. we put loads of crickets in there and it is just, you open a tank and there's six and you're like, ew. Um, the golden mantella tank, they're pretty much the size of the golden mantellas. So <laughs> Definitely spider, spider central around here. Yeah, there was no such biochemical drama when we came to see the cranes. <laughs> they were. That's why amphibians are superior. <laughs> exactly. Who is this? This is very, very long. <laughs> this is a Danube crested newt. Um, so we've got two. There's one in the grass as well. Um, uh, look very look very much like a great crested newt. Yeah. A yeah. great crested newt, but that you've like clipped just uh, like the vertical edge on Microsoft Word and just elongated the picture. 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah completely perfect description of them. Yeah. Those are your Iberians, by the way. I know you wanted to see them. Oh, so these are the ones. With the ribs. So these are Iberian what newts? Ribbed newts. Iberian rib newts. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the Iberian rib newt? The one thing I do know about them uh, is that they can push their ribs through their skin when threatened. Um, so if that was into the mouth of a predator, that would be quite shocking for your dinner to do that to you, um, which causes them to be released. I would um, say that's all you need to know about them. <laughs> yeah, no, arguably that is the best fact, so yeah. I just stopped there as yeah. soon as I learned that. Um, and they can survive it as well and heal afterwards. And they that's have, so again, <clears throat> white noise behind the eyes. They oh. hang it in the water and people ask me if they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> Plus they're lovely. They are lovely. It's just come up to the tank, you just sort of ambled over yeah. like an old Labrador. <laughs> and just... <laughs> Trying you know, to eat your finger. It's just... Yeah, following my finger around. They're an earthworm eating species. They, they eat other things as well, but they particularly like earthworms. Yeah. How... I don't know if this is me not knowing anything about ponds, the earth, worms or newts, mm -hmm. but how does that get the earthworm? Can they dig? So they, Do can, they... they can be on land. Okay. The newts and yeah. earthworms, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, they will come across them. Um, our earthworms survive for a surprisingly long time in water sometimes, so that gives them enough time to find them and eat them. But they'll also eat like bloodworm, artemia, yeah, daphnia, yeah. you know, any number of small aquatic invertebrate. Anything they come across really, I think they probably eat fish and tadpoles as well if they could. And newts can spend, don't things like great crested newts or whatever, spend quite a lot of time on land. Yes, like, they can, yeah, so outside of the breeding season, yeah. yeah, a lot of time. But these ones seem to be largely aquatic. Okay. You know, we, we put them on land very occasionally when we're doing a tank clean or something, but they they much prefer. We've given them the option of land here and I've never seen them use it, so uh, much happier in the water. Yeah. I um, heard or read or whatever years ago that with axolotls, which I know we're not looking at in this room, but I know you both have and everything else, but. So they kind of exist for anyone who doesn't know, basically between tadpole and adult stage, and they're this kind of permanent living bag of stem cells. But with them, if you have them in a tank and you steadily lower the water level, they will complete 
their metamorphosis. And then if you return the water, they will revert back to an aquatic and you can basically, I don't know if, you know, thoughts. <laughs> so I knew there was uh, like a genetic quirk where some of them have this gene where they'll spontaneously metamorph. Um, and that one I think is not reversible. I'm pretty sure they spend their okay. life as a land salamander after yeah. that. Um, but they are just nuts as a species. So yeah. I think there were some poor scientists that were having a really horrible time learning about them because we use lots of facts in our talks where we say things like, they can regrow a limb up to five times. And I think that probably wasn't a particularly fun <laughs> series of experiments, but the things that we've learned from them are amazing. Yeah. They can regenerate their spine, their spinal cord. Yeah. They can regrow parts of their brain if they're damaged. Um, so the potential in an axolotl, if we can translate that to, you know, human medical science, yes. would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, you said poor scientists. I would just put it to you. <laughs> Very much poor axolotls. <laughs> <laughs> I presume there was something in there to help them survive the process. <laughs> and why don't they just live in, they just live in caves in Mexico or something like that? So it's one, one lake and one canal system. Why are they so hardcore? That they've based, but it's also the one lake and the one canal system that they've now effectively built Mexico City like on. Mm. Oh. Yeah. So and then there's like, another yeah. similar axolotl-esque salamander in Mexico from, that's endemic to like another lake. So there's a couple lakes in Mexico that have these neotenic salamanders that never grow up. And axolotls are the ones which are the most famous. But what? But even so, what they're, they're really that? famous. There's less than a thousand left in the wild, oh, but yeah. more than a million in captivity. Wow. Yes. And, you know, people come in, they ask us about Minecraft all the time now. They're like, oh, are they in Minecraft? Golden. Yeah, there's different colours that you can have and you can breed them in Minecraft. Because the other day I was looking up axolotl breeding and it was like, oh, you'd have to offer them some fish. And it was like a Minecraft <laughs> forum. I was like, oh, okay, not particularly helpful, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just wonder what they've co evolved with. In, in what's living in that lake. Scientists. <laughs> That's, they're in an evolutionary arms race with, with human medical research. Can we have a look at the, the ones in the big tank? Absolutely. Soon to be a new addition to Toad Hall as well, which is nice. Right. So they're up here for now, but we're making moves. We've got them a new tank. So this is a much bigger tank. It's this one's Huge. about 450 litres, I think. Um, yeah. So we've just commissioned a new one, and the empty tank itself weighed 200 kilos. Um, so it's a big old... And this is the one that's got tank. its own chiller, isn't it? Yeah, so a lot of ours have chillers, but this is the biggest chiller for okay. sure. Um, and probably one of the coolest species. So these are our Lake Titicaca water frogs. Um, I call them the titties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people will call them scrotum frogs as well. Because yeah. they have this wonderful flabby skin yeah to sort of describe i love the way they're sitting mm. they're like quite they look like bodybuilders frogs or like they're sort of like on edge so they do do push-ups do they That's part of that so when oxygen is low in the environment they'll do kind of a bobbing push-up motion and that moves the water across their skin and helps them to um sort of increase that flow and get that surface area to be able to do gaseous exchange so they're fully aquatic they do come out onto land Right, so given the name, mm -hmm. Lake Titicaca Frog, yes. are they only found in the lake? Yes, um, so this is a really specific species and it's a very high altitude lake as well in Peru. 
Um, so they have a number of adaptations to help them deal with that. And how, what's their population like in the wild? How are they doing in the wild? Critically endangered, I believe. So would this be the rarest thing you have here, or have you got something that can top the... No, this is, these ones are pretty special. Yeah. These ones are one of my favourites and one of the best ones to talk about from a conservation kind of perspective. It's like a child's drawing of a frog. I think they squint like they need glasses as well. They're not quite <laughs> sure what's going on around. They are the ugliest tadpoles you'll ever see in your life. If I you can, ever see one... I can how, believe that. How, how, how much variation is there on a tadpole? Oh, so much. Some of them, so our blue dart frogs are beautiful little blue tadpoles. They get four little legs, they're like swimming around. These ones look like you've stuck like four feet, no legs, onto a potato. Um, they're quite, they're quite incredibly ugly. I can find you the photo and show it to you. It's stunning. Let me, let me find the photo because yeah. that'll be a good one. So here's a tadpole. Oh my, okay, you were right. Christ. <laughs> Feet on a potato. Yeah. Roddy, would you like to describe to the dear listeners? I mean, to be, I think Kay has absolutely nailed it, but, <laughs> you know, plus her face. Mm. Yeah, it's like the, a sentient potato. It's like yes. the first thing that crawled out of the ocean. Yeah. To, yeah. To I mean, it kind of, it's going back to well, amphibian roots. Oh, it's sure. But it human tadpole yeah. form. It looks like it didn't change from then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of them haven't. Yeah. I watched the film, this is... The, such a niche reference that I might cut it, but I watched the film Evolution oh, yeah. at the weekend, if anyone has seen or remembers that, and that is about a meteor strikes and all these weird animals evolve, and there's a scene in that where these women open the door and in it they think it's a dog, but it is like a sort of potato animal that then bites them. This looks very close to, I mean, like I said, that is such a, there's like a three minute scene in a movie from 2001, but, for the fans. The one person who got that <laughs> yeah. is loving it. It's finding that hilarious. So these ones are horrendous to handle. <laughs> so are they? they when you take them out of the water, they've got this fantastic mucosal coating on their skin. So it's like holding on to a wet, slippy, you know, thing that's actively fighting you. So we have to microchip these next week in order to be able to put them on the show. What like dogs? Kind of, yeah, so it's a similar kind of thing, but what we do is we put it into their back legs. Um, so me and the veterinary team, the veterinary team and I, are going to have to catch them up, um, restrain them one by one, get a, get a microchip into their back legs. Um, I never knew you microchipped frogs. So you can, you don't always, um, but it's a really, really common thing in like release, um, recapture kind of programs as well. Um, so you can have teeny tiny little markers that go in the thigh. You can have kind of a coloured dye that you can put into the back of tadpoles and then that will still be there when they metamorph, which is super, super cool. It'll still be there in the back of the tadpole. You can put it in a tadpole and it stays in them. Down. I do, yeah. But, but like you put it in one bit of the tadpole and then it metamorphosizes and suddenly they have like a blue eyebrow. You normally put it in like the <laughs> middle of their back, which tends to stay the same from tadpole. Okay, I thought this would be like a rogue microchip. You just, you <laughs> You're just like it. scanning them head to toe, like, where is it? <laughs> I mean, I've sort of crouched down next to the tank and looking at one pretty much eye to eye and nothing, absolutely, absolutely nothing. vacant. <laughs> okay, we're taking a break from our trip to Slimbridge to bring you the birder segment, which this week, Jack, we're calling 
well, we're not calling it this. Someone on Instagram is calling it this. And I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry because I forgot their name, but you know who you are. They are calling it, I can't believe it's not Birder. Excellent. Excellent. The first, it took someone outside of us to come up with a name that wasn't just a pun on better. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure those of you listening are well familiar with Birder now, but just in case you're a new listener, Birder is a fantastic nature bird watching app that helps you get outside and enjoy bird watching through challenges, leaderboards and fun badges. There's a whole community on there. It's very you know, think of a social media thing, liking, commenting, sharing. You can post the birds you've seen, if you know what they are. If you don't know what they are, you can ask the community to help you ID them. And every bird has its own little page on the app so you can learn facts about them. It's completely free. This podcast is free. The best things in life are free. Bird is free. So if you do want to download it, if you check out our pages, there's a link there that will take you straight through to it. And we, this week are going because we're in Slimbridge we're doing a WWT bird so the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust and the bird we've got this week is the spoon-billed sandpiper. Mm, we should say when you say WWT bird it's not like they invented it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or so that they it came out of their labs yeah. like they, they just, <laughs> you know, out of a petri dish they tried to make the ultimate I would say cute bird because this one's pretty adorable. Yeah, or um, like they the, sort of signed a contract with it, you know, like they have exclusivity on the bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean Jack has already said So this is kind of a, a slightly not a tricky one to get into, but first of all we're saying it's a WWT bird. It's not a British bird. So it's not based mm-hmm. here. Okay. The reason WWT are so interested and invested and they have them is because of the conservation required for this bird. This is, mm. it might be the rarest bird that we've had in this segment. Yeah, yeah, probably is the rarest bird we have in this segment. Yeah. yeah, it's not having a good time. No, there's somewhere, I mean, I got a couple figures, somewhere around 400 to 800 mark of these left in the wild. Um, and you mentioned they were cute so do you want to take us through what they look like yeah so for people who don't know what a sandpiper is then we're talking about uh, a little wading bird so it's the birds that you know run around on the shores and in the water and they've got long legs but this is a small one you know it would fit if you could hold it quite comfortably in your hand Um, and then the spoonbill element it's quite self-explanatory there is a bird called a spoonbill which is much bigger um, which just has a whacking great big beak which almost looks like a ladle um, which it uses for filter feeding and the spoonbilled sandpiper has it's it's just has this tiny little spoonbill on the front it's just a it's a very adorable bird yeah the the babies of them are almost like bumblebee-esque colored kind of dappled with bits of yellow and black and this tiny like it is we've spoken about some animals being essentially real life pokemon i would describe the spoon-billed sandpiper not just as a real life pokemon but as a real life pokemon via pixar like (laughs) so cute yeah i believe actually that pixar did do one of their little short films that they do in front of other films i think they did one called piper yeah which was about uh, a little a little sandpiper not the spoonbill sandpiper yeah. but it was about a little sandpiper chick running around on the shore because they're they're just very cute little things so the spoonbill sandpiper absolutely adorable as jack mentioned pixar-esque and pretty much has already inspired things but sadly for such an adorable bird 
really, really struggling in the world. We mentioned somewhere between 400 to 800. And the reason we're bringing them in here is because we're at WWT and they've done some fantastic work helping get these populations, um, you know, conservation efforts to support these populations in the wild. And this is really, you know, WWT have shown before with when they've done the Madagascar Pochard and things like that, they've stepped in at really like crisis conservation where you're down to the last few uh, animals and the spoonbill sandpiper is being affected by things like wetland, uh, wetland habitat destruction and hunting and things like that. So the WWT have done lots of fantastic conservation work to try and stop this species from disappearing. Yep. And one of the things they do, one of the techniques is head starting, where they go and they help eggs, uh, you know, collecting the eggs and helping them raise a bit. And just to give you a, a kind of a, a broad stroke of what this is like, so for every 20 eggs that are laid in the wild, naturally, only three chicks would survive to adulthood. But by using the head starting techniques, WWT have been able to dramatically improve the odds so that now 15 out of every 20 head started chicks survive, which is obviously a huge effort and a massive upswing for the birds. Now, I do just want to pick up on one thing, though, because this is a migratory bird, okay? And they can travel over 8,000 kilometers from Russia, where they breed, and then to the estuaries of South Korea and India and other bits and bobs. And one of the other sort of parts of the conservation journey is they've recently started putting these teeny tiny little satellite tags on them, which can help really show where they're going on that migration. Now... It's not to say that I have a bone to pick with the spoon-billed sandpiper. <laughs> but, but it sure sounds like you do. But every now and then, when I hear about a species that, you know, has a massive conservation effort and all the rest going into it, I'm, you know, obviously start off, terrible news. I'm not to saying that the spoon-billed sandpipers are making it hard for themselves, but their migratory route in terms of the sites that they pick are some of the most geopolitically tense situations <laughs> on planet Earth. With this new satellite tracking revealing a handful of sites in North Korea which are key on their way to Russia. Two countries I would say at the moment. Now, if you are listening in North Korea, welcome to the show, welcome to the flock. But just... I, I think maybe we need yeah. to reach out as part of the head starting project just letting them know some geopolitical you know a seat at the UN for the spoon build sandpiper or maybe just a work experience placement with a diplomat to just maybe ease off on uh yeah the WWT can't just rock up in North Korea and open like you know WWT Pyongyang exactly yeah. <laughs> twinned with Slimbridge in Gloucestershire <laughs> yeah yeah so a little bit tricky to get that conservation work done but the fact that there is this upswing as we mentioned the head starting efforts and outreach with uh, subsistence hunters in parts of Myanmar on the flats there where they're also you know again Myanmar geopolitically the last <laughs> while pretty spicy yeah. so the spoon-billed sandpiper has really picked a, a migratory route for itself but fantastic efforts going into protecting this absolutely critically endangered bird and to bring it all back there's a captive population in Slimbridge which helps with the breeding now captive populations you can't quite really log on birder but there has been a birder sighting of this with one having been seen on the east coast of India I was waiting to ask this question. I was going to say, has anybody logged a spoon-billed sandpiper? Because for many bird birders, for many ornithologists, that's 
like you know it's a bucket list bird yeah the spoonbilled sandpiper and its conservation story is well known amongst you know people within these circles and to have one of those locked on birder is quite the claim yeah exactly so not to inundate the east coast of india with you know how many geese fans but get out there download birder and you know if you are fortunate enough to see one in the wild absolutely incredible but spoonbilled sandpiper fantastic little bird absolute pixar creature and check out the link on our page get out there download birder and see what's on your doorstep So we're now in your, this is your office. This is my office. This is where the magic happens. And this is the tropical stuff in here? Some of it, yeah. So um, it's also the back of our native displays. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of keep it at a mid ground again. Okay. Um, but we also have loads of good heating in here for when we need it. So we've got Amazonian species. The Australian species is the warmest of the bunch. Yeah. Um, Argentinian, African, um, so things that can tolerate it a bit hotter and would prefer it a bit hotter living here. Yeah. Um, Queen Cindy, of course. <laughs> Queen Cindy, the bullfrog. Yes, so she's an African bullfrog. She's the largest frog in our collection. She weighs in at about 300 grams. She's got a <laughs> private infinity pool, so she'll either spend all day in that <laughs> or just kind of looking very apathetic on the surface of the soil, but that means she's happy. She's not having to move anywhere because she's got everything she needs. Yeah. Males of this species would be about four times the size of her. Whoa. So they're kind of a dinner plate size, 1.2 kilo stack of frog. Um, and they're the ones that you see on all the documentaries and stuff doing this amazing WWE style. Just like suplexing each other in a, yeah. in a puddle. Yeah, for sure. So they've got fantastic teeth, which they can sink in when they need to. Um, and that also means that they can eat some mammals and some birds um, and all sorts, which is super, super, well, I'd say super unusual. It's more unusual for amphibians compared to a lot of the ones that we keep in our collection. So. Yeah, so they're the ones that can just like eat mice and things, aren't they? If they're you big. are talking about frogs being, you know, a mouth and a stomach on legs, she's a garbage can. <laughs> a municipal skip. <laughs> <laughs> municipal skip of a frog. Yeah. So this is our native invasive side of the collection. So we have this and then we have like the, the more kind of neotropical side down the other half. Um, our African clawed frogs is our DreamWorks inspired tank. Mm. Um, so Princess Fiona lives in my office. Um, and then Shrek, Donkey, Lord Farquaad and Dragon live on show. Um, and they're our natural coloration. We have, I think, two boys, two girls in this tank. The girls are a lot dumpier. Mm. Um, so this would be a female here. Um, you can see that she's girthier than some of the other ones. Um, and it looks like her eyes are popping out. Yeah, so they don't have eyelids, they don't have teeth, and they don't have tongues. So they're really, really freaky. You can see as well they've got unwebbed front feet. And on their back feet they're webbed and they have three painted toenails. They've got three black little toenails on their back feet. So this is where the clawed comes from? Yes, so name. they kind of, when you see them eating, it's quite an aggressive style of consumption. So they'll be shoveling it in with both their hands. Um, and they're a completely aquatic species, as in, you know, do they come out on land very much? They can if they have to. Okay. They'd much prefer not to, um, but if food was scarce, if their pond was drying up, any kind of um, stress like that, they can burrow down into soil and live there for up to a year. 
Oh, wow. So these guys are the ultimate invasive species. They're explosive breeders. They can tolerate salinity in water. They can tolerate a really wide range of temperatures, a lack of food. Um, and that's what makes them so dangerous, um, as well as disease vectors, um, because they can carry something and pretty much take it anywhere. So um, am I right in thinking that these use these were used as a like a these have been widely used in like medical research and things like that and, so, and, and taken around the world yes yeah, so one of the things they were really really useful for um i think in about the 1960s was as a pregnancy test yeah so if you inject a female african clawed frog um with urine from a pregnant person they'll swell with eggs so it was a really really useful early method of telling when someone was pregnant. I mean, just hearing that, it sounds like witchcraft, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like who, who, <laughs> like what, who tested it? Who thought of it? How did they find that out? Mm. Like an accident happened there where somebody discovered that. What had they gone through before they got to the African clawed frog? Like we've tried <laughs> ostriches, <laughs> salmon. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. it worked. So do we have these in the UK? Yes. They're wild in the UK? Well, Invasive. You're saying wild, yeah. Well, yeah so I know, it's fantastic doing talks on these because you go, they're from sub-Saharan <laughs> Africa and you can also find populations in France, Italy, the UK, North America. They are everywhere. These ones eat dead stuff as well. Just saying. They eat dead stuff? They eat everything. So they eat worms, fish, things that are alive, but they'll also like rip dead off a carcass. Really? Yeah. So if, so if a dead bird or something sank down... African clawed frogs just tearing chunks off it. If it took long enough, I yeah. presume if it, it has to go a little bit soupy, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. But yeah, they're not fussy and, and they're also ravenous. They are like, you know, looking at frogs all day, they are without doubt the most vacant. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I think it's because they don't have any eyelids, so they just have this kind of glazed expression all the time. And These are another one that's horrible to handle, they're slippy as anything. Yeah, and their eyes are kind of very much on the top of their head. Yeah. If you think of a normal frog being on the side, these are kind of on the top looking upwards as opposed to looking outwards. So they look just, they look like they've been stitched. Yeah, so these are lateral lines like you get on sharks. So these oh, can help wow. to detect electrical currents in the water. Yeah, so all along their sort of side, it, it honestly looks like they've been stitched together. They like look like a, like a coralline soft yes. toy kind of. Yeah, like a Tim Burton frog. Yeah, yeah. If we had our DreamWorks that is like the opposite side of that you know it's called shrek but it's actually kind of horrifying yeah yeah nightmare before christmas with their edward scissorhands like <laughs> little feet yeah this is the rarest frog in the uk in terms of native species so this is our pool frog so they look a broadly they look quite similar to normal frogs do they or is that sacrilegious to say um so i would argue you that they don't. Yeah. <laughs> so our common frogs are like quite bulky, quite blotchy. Mm -hmm. um, these tend to have a little bit more streamlined to them. Mm -hmm. um, they have stripes down their back, which are really, really different. But I say that as someone who looks at frogs all day. So they're yeah. different to me. They wouldn't necessarily yeah. um, be different to people. The thing I remember about seeing them was that go faster stripe yes. down the back. Yes, yeah, so Just it's like... with them, but it's also with the Nastratodes. They have a fantastic yellow stripe down the middle oh, of the back as well. So. Um, I like to call the Natterjacks the like surfer dudes of native species. Yeah. So they like beaches, they like 
they can tolerate salty water and then you have a cool stripe, you know. Um, so I feel like this is like a less cool version of that because this is yeah. less bright but still still a nice marking. To They're have. definitely not as cool. I've just noticed that on the on the sign here it says people have given them the nicknames like Cambridge and Nightingale because of the noise they make. So they're, they're definitely, they take themselves a lot more serious, like operatic versus <laughs> your like hang ten bro, uh, like natterjack toads. Cacophonous, some might say. Oh, very loud. Lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I play a lot of Scrabble. Yeah, I was going to, that, that's, a, that's a Scrabble player. <laughs> yeah. no, no normal civilian is pulling mm. out cacophonous. <laughs> Someone who knows their way around a tile. <laughs> oh, like, now you can see fire though with their five hands. Oh, there. She'll probably come settled near the front. Okay, so you've just said here's Fiverr with her five hands, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what we're looking at? So uh, I have three axolotls in this tank, uh, two males and a female. Um, our female happens to be the kind of more common coloration that you get in the pet trade. Um, so she's a beautiful luminescent white. Um, she's got pink gills. Um, She's the one that you would make a soft toy out of if you could. So it's selective breeding that gets them to look like this. Right. Um, super, super common in pets because it's kind of cute and pink and a bit unusual. Whereas the boys, when she's in with them, she's not in with them all the time, the boys blend in really, really well to their background. They're like a dark brown. They're kind of mottled on the skin. Um, so people will see her and go, oh, that's nice and move on and completely miss the boys, even though they're sort of a big salamander. Yeah. They are the biggest salamander in our collection. It says they can get to over a foot. Yeah. In well, she's got five. <laughs> hey, so, we're all having a good day. Yeah, I should probably explain about her. Um, she had an accident when she was living with the boys before um, and she sustained some damage to her front right leg. Um, so she was separated from them while she healed. Um, so she grew back her leg, which was wonderful to see. You've got photos of this huge, huge axolotl with like a tiny, creepy little baby hand. And then it grows out and kind of fills out as it goes. Like Deadpool. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely, yeah. completely like that. Um, but she's like a bit of an overachiever. Um, so she grew back two hands on the same leg. Um, so she's got five hands, so I call her Fiverr. <laughs> Excellent. And people ask me what the boys are called, and I'm like, well, they haven't done anything interesting <laughs> enough to be named, so they don't deserve it. Oh, yeah, that's old two heads. <laughs> <laughs> that's new spine. Yeah. And what about the name Axolotl itself? So I've heard that it, I don't know if it's Aztec or an urban legend or what, but I've heard that it means walking fish, or that another name for them is walking fish. So they're actually named after the Aztec god of lightning. Yes, um, please. Legend has it that he could turn himself into a salamander to escape any sticky situations. Um, so what sort of sticky situations would turning into a salamander? Well, I don't know, because nothing <laughs> involving like large fish or birds. <laughs> I don't think that would particularly help, but they are very good at hiding and they love all the little kind of nooks and crannies in their tank. So maybe <laughs> as like a coward's way out, perhaps. Yeah, I can't think of any situations I've been in in my life where I suddenly need to get out of it and... The solution is quick. <laughs> <laughs> quick, must become a salamander. <laughs> I think it seems like quite a nice life. I don't think I'd mind being a salamander. Yeah, and it's a very cool name. Yeah, It's yeah. a very cool name. 
So Toad Hall was next to a soft play area and there were some families going through, so we decided to step outside just to finish off. Thank you so much for showing us around Slimbridge on our second visit, a year to the day. Thank you for organising much better weather than Scott was able to. Oh, you're more than welcome. Yeah. <laughs> just got to work with Toad Hall magic, you know. Yeah, very ectothermic to make sure the sun was out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to keep us all warm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been fantastic seeing the collection, hearing about the collection, hearing about not just... Because I honestly, coming into this, Jack did a lot of the organising. I thought it was just going to be native species, but to see all of the international species and the work that Slimbridge is doing in the captive breeding and supporting all that, it's been absolutely fantastic. So yeah, yeah. and I think much? you know Slimbridge gets a lot of a lots of credit about its birds, but I think it's nice to nice to shine a light on what you're doing in your little toad hall corner. Yeah. Like it's been really, really interesting to hear. Well, I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll have to come back next year to that, the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for that's sure. it. The eleventh of May. <laughs> Countdown starts now. We'll be here for our annual visit. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, a big thank you to Kay and the team at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust for hosting us and giving us an amazing day out at Slimbridge. WWT are an awesome organisation. Go check them out on socials. Go visit one of their sites. See one of these amazing places that they look after as well as just having a great time you'll know that you're supporting some brilliant conservation work too as always listener thank you from us at how many geese for listening to the show we'll be back pretty soon for another summer special we'll see you then